Well, good morning. We are in week two this week of our series, The Summer in Psalms. And uh, we're going to spend the entirety of our summer uh, for 10 weeks or so just taking a look at some of the psalms that we have here in Scripture, some of maybe the some of the more well-known ones, some of the lesser-known ones, uh, but we're going to take a look and take a take a dive into into how they were written, who wrote them, uh, and how we can how we can learn and how we can apply these psalms into our lives. And last week we started off Psalm 56, uh, and David as he's on the run from from King Saul. Uh, Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him. He writes this psalm, and he just says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. And we talked about how when we're lonely, or when we're afraid, or when we're opposed, or when we're overwhelmed, that we can put our trust in God. And David says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. We can trust in this God, and we can trust in his word. Psalm 56 was such a great one, and this week we're going to... We're going to dive into another one here this week, and I had a couple in mind as we were, as I was getting ready for this, uh, this week of our series, and, and I settled on one, and it's one of the, the most humbling, convicting, and encouraging psalms I think we have in Scripture here. It's Psalm 51, reading one of our pew Bibles on page 405. Go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to walk through that one today. This one is a bit challenging, though, uh, to say the least. Charles Spurgeon, the guy who uh, has a lot to say about Scripture, is a great preacher. He says, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, oh, where is he who, having attempted it, can do no other than blush at his defeat? I read that this week, and I just thought, well, I mean, there's that. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm going to give my best shot this, this morning uh, to, to kind of just dive into this psalm and walk through it. Psalm 51, if you want to go ahead and join me in Psalm 51. And again, like last week, I want to I first jump into the context of this psalm. Even before you get to, to verse 1, Psalm 51 says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So here's the, it's, it's a clear historical insight into where this psalm is coming from. And so like last week, I want us to, to hold our spot here in Psalm 51. We'll get there. Uh, but like last week, we went to, to 1 Samuel and looked at David running from Saul. This week, I want to I jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I want to just read this story that sets up this psalm. And so 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a story uh, many of you may know. Uh, if, and if you do, I just want to ask you this. Just as you are listening, just listen as if you were listening for the very first time. Listen as if you've never heard this story before. So that in this, you might just catch a glimpse, maybe into a new meaning, or, a, or a, just a refreshed meaning, into Psalm chapter 51. I'm just going to read this story, and then we'll jump into Psalm 51. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, 
David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of, son of Jerob Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife had heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, and he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. 
had shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your, master, and, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And Nathan goes home. And this is where Psalm 51 is born. And we'll just go straight into this song. This is, this is where David is at as he writes these words. Now listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back. To you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. 
May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is, this is the psalm that David writes. And I want to just begin to, to walk through this psalm and really just allow the truths of this psalm to kind of seep out into our souls and seep out into our hearts. And, and I think there's probably three or four truths that come out of this passage this morning. And here's, here's the first one. Number one, sin is serious. Sin is serious. David even uses three or four words here to describe his sin. He, he, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Even in verse 4, he calls it evil. He, he understands the seriousness of this sin. Right? Even just the word transgression. Transgression literally means to, to go against a known law. Right? He understands that, that this sin is a very serious thing. And, and I think... I think that's because there's really these two natures of sin, right? First of all, sin defies God. And David knows that. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, we can stop right there and say, well, hold on a second. David sinned against more than just God. What about, what about Uriah? What about Uriah's wife? What about that kid that died because of what he did? We'll get to that. But first of all, sin defies God. I think David understands that the worst consequence of this sin is that he has defied the infinitely holy God of the universe. I want you to just think about this transition with me. In 2 Samuel, David's mindset was nothing but how do I cover this up? How do I cover up my sin right now? How do I cover up that this happened? I know. Let me get Uriah here and let me have him go home and sleep with his wife so that no one will know that Uriah's wife, his son, is my son. How do I cover this up? And then you get to Psalm 51, and the, and the shift has, is just there. The mood has changed completely from, from how do I cover this up to this, how, how could I do this against God? How could I have done this? How, how did I get to this place? I have, have mercy on me. God, how did I get here? And I think... This is the point that every single one of us needs to get to. The point of realizing that and seeing our sin for what it is. Outright defiance against the holy God who created each and every one of us with a purpose, on purpose, for a reason. We are, we are created by this God. And when we sin, we are defying this holy God. Sin is serious because it defies God. But it's not all that's involved. It defies God, but sin, sin destroys people. How I mean, you look at this sin of David here, and the effects of this sin are far-reaching. I mean, there is, a, there is a marriage that's destroyed. There is a man that is essentially murdered. A wife loses a husband. A child loses a father. And then the child itself dies, all because of this sin of David. The effects of our sin are far-reaching. I don't think we can ever underestimate the power of our sin. Even our small sins are serious in the eyes of this holy God. 
I mean, think about this. David's sin started with a glance. You go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. The, the sin that started everything started with the bite of an apple. Right? And these things don't, don't sound big. They don't sound like they're, they're these huge sins, but they are, they are infinitely serious. Even what we perceive as a slight sin is infinitely serious before a God because we are defying God. Sin is serious. I think we read this psalm and we, we begin to understand that. But the second thing that we begin to understand is this, that not only is sin serious, but God is gracious. Sin is serious, but God is gracious. David uses different words here to describe grace as well. If you look, have, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Uh, David is, is just pleading to, this, to our God here, and he's asking essentially that God would, would just unsin him, which is such a, it's a, that is a, that's a bold request to ask the God that you defied to just act like it never happened. I mean, how do you even ask that? God, I know that I have sinned against you, but, but God, I just pray that you would, you would essentially unsin me. And on what basis is David asking this question? And the answer is this. There is no basis for this. David has committed two sins in adultery and murder for which the law at this time provides no forgiveness. The penalty for both of these sins at this time is death. And so the plea at the very beginning of this psalm is for nothing but mercy. David knows that he, he is pleading to this merciful God, but David knows that this mercy comes with a cost. That's how we get to, the, to what are known as the four most important, least understood words of this psalm. Cleanse me with hyssop. Some, some translations say purge me with hyssop. I researched what this was, and hyssop is a, is a small plant. And uh, as it grows, it, it's, it grows into what looks like a brush. And so, so they use it as a brush. And, and if someone was unclean, you go back to Leviticus and Numbers, if someone was unclean, they would go to a priest and the priest would use hyssop to brush or, or sprinkle blood over a sacrifice or over a person. And in Exodus chapter 12, the people of God are, are given a prescription for the Passover sacrifice. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22, it says this, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of, out of the door of your house until morning. We, we see here that hyssop is what the, what the Israelites use as they're, they're in captivity in Egypt to brush the blood of the lamb on the top and the sides of the doorposts so that, so that God would pass over their house even as all the firstborn in Egypt are killed. And later in, in Leviticus and Numbers, hyssop is used to sprinkle blood on people or, or sacrifices in, in cleansing ceremonies. 
And so David has this prayer, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. He's referring to sacrifice here. See, David knows that the penalty for sin, and in particular, these two sins that he has committed, is death. And if he expects sin to be removed, the penalty must be paid by something or someone besides him. A penalty must be paid. And see, this is where I can't just, I can't just leave this psalm in the Old Testament we have to, to venture into the new to talk about this sacrifice. If you go to Hebrews with me, Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It says the law requires, this is the the Old Testament law that, that requires this. But he keeps going in verse 26 here. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Chapter 10, the next chapter, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In our sin, you and I can only approach God through the sacrifice of another. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven. This is the grace of God. This is the gracious God that David is is writing to in this psalm. This is the gospel that God sees our sin but is gracious and provides the blood of Jesus Christ to cover over our sins. This is the gospel. Sin is serious but God is gracious. So how do we connect these two dots? I think the third truth here is that confession is necessary. We have to be willing to confess our sins. David, is, David spends a lot of time in this psalm just confessing, I have sinned against you, blot out my transgressions. And he, he was really confessing in this psalm in two different ways. The first way is just honesty. He he's, he's has an honest confession, and he's completely transparent with God. He's not trying to hide things anymore. He's not trying to pretend like nothing ever happened. I mean, I, I mentioned Genesis 3 earlier. This is the exact opposite of Genesis chapter 3. 
In Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and you have Eve, and, and, and they get caught in this sin of eating the apple, and each of them blames the other person. God says to Adam, Adam, bro, what's going on here? What happened? How could you do this? And Adam says, hey, it was Eve. It was this woman that you gave me. He's essentially blaming God. And then Eve says, hey, it was this, it was this serpent. It was a serpent. It was a serpent that you made, God. Eve was even blaming God. It wasn't their fault. It was God's fault. And God shouldn't have created this other person. God shouldn't have created this, this, this serpent. But David isn't doing this. David is being transparent with, with what is going on here. David is being transparent with, with the fact that he has sinned. It is an honest confession for him. You read verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51 here. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. David understands that, that something has to happen on the inside this confession can't just be an, an outward show. It's not just a religious duty. It has to be an honest confession. There's an honest confession, but he's also confessing humbly. He's confessing with humility here. I, I have sinned against you. And notice, he's not, he's not asking for for different way, different things that he can do to be able to, to earn back the love of God. He's not asking for, for different penalties that he can go and do to somehow, to somehow just wipe away this sin by something he's doing. What is he praying for here? He's praying for mercy. He's praying for love. He's praying for compassion in this psalm. He understands here that he cannot do anything to take away this sin. Only God can do this. David is praying humbly. Saying, God, I, I, I can't do this on my own. Only you can, can take this away. It's something that separates us from, from really all other religions. But we need to be able to confess honestly. We need to be able to confess humbly. Sin is serious, but God is gracious. We need to confess. Uh, the confession is necessary. But here's the, the final truth, and I think it's the greatest truth out of this psalm. That the result of all of this is restoration with God. I, I want you to just notice what David is, is praying for here in verse 10. He's not just praying for a clean slate. He's not just praying that, that God would just, just wipe, wipe clean his life. David is, is, is praying for a new heart. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit from me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David is is asking God for a, for a clean heart to create in him 
a clean heart. And in response to our confession, God doesn't just wipe the slate clean. God recreates our heart. This, this word that David is praying here, created me a clean heart, created me a pure heart. This word create is the same word in Genesis chapter 1 that we see used when we're talking about God creating the heavens and the earth. When we talk about God creating the animals and creating the water and creating the trees and the plants and the gardens and God creates Adam and Eve. This is the same word that is used and David is saying, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you create in me a pure heart? God, I, I don't want you to just wipe my slate clean. I don't want this just to be, to be gone and out of me. I want a new heart. I want a clean heart and only you can do this. I want a clean heart. And the amazing thing is that in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The old is gone. The old is not just wiped clean. The old is gone. The new has come. And this, this is the gospel. That when we confess our sin, when we come to the grips with the fact that sin is serious, but we serve a gracious God, when we come to the fact that we can confess our sins and God creates in us a clean heart, God creates in us the same God that created the universe and created the sun and the stars and created the trees and the ocean and the land and created Adam and Eve, created each and every one of you, of us. We come to grips with this fact that this same Creator God can create in the same way a new heart in you and in me. This is the gospel. This is the restoration that each and every one of us can have. And my prayer this week is that if there are any of us that are caught in a sin, and it may not be a sin like David. But if any of us are caught in any sort of sin, even a slight one, that we don't think really matters that much, when we come to grips this week that this sin is serious, but that God is gracious, and that if we confess our sin to this gracious God, that we can be restored to him, that we can have a new heart within us. This new heart, and it changes everything. We can be completely restored to God, and we can live a life of praise to this creator God who makes old things new and creates in each and every single one of us a brand new heart. Let's pray.